The Pursuit of Podcast, a purely guest-centric show focusing on people and organizations that advance positive change. Positivity can be anywhere, and in a time of vast discord, the pursuit of is finding those who champion its causes loudest. Join us as we sit and learn about the pursuits of local leaders in their community. Let's go. Hello, good people, and welcome to the Pursuit of Podcast, where it's truly not us, it's you. I'm Ryan Buck, Artist Development, New Leonard Media. With me, as always, is the boss, Mark Wilson, President, New Leonard Media. How are you? Oh, dude, I'm doing great. I just had a great round of golf today with some friends. That's enough talking about us. So our guests today are Brett Fessel, river ecologist for the Grand Travers Band of Ottawa and Chippewa Indians, and Frank Deturi, implementation team chairman. How are you? I'm great. I'm doing Didn't wonderful. Didn't mean to stifle you with that first question. Right. You're good? <laughs> yeah, I come off the course just fine today. So Yeah, so coming right off a golf game, it's tough to burst right into this topic, but we're going to do our best. And this is exciting because our last recorded episode was the first episode with two guests, so I think we're in a good comfort zone ah, with yes. multiple guests. And I think this is an exciting episode because this is our first episode, which we hope to be a two-part episode which will be great. And I got some pre-work, which was really nice. And I'm going to just start by saying the stated purpose of this episode is to tell the story of the Boardman Ottaway River Ecosystem Restoration Initiative, or BORI. Did you guys think about an acronym for that, or is that too, too <laughs> Well, you, you wouldn't want to know some of the acronyms it's that we came up B-O-R-E-R-I. <laughs> that's what it would be, BORI. And that's, I guess, not a good acronym for, no. for an initiative. But you have so much experience and knowledge, and I'm actually pretty intimidated right now, to be honest. Sabo, as a layman, if you drop some acronyms and some deep knowledge, I'm going to probably stop and ask you to explain it, if you don't mind. Is that okay? Just off the top? You bet. All right. So you have diverse backgrounds, but clearly common passions and goals. And I kind of want to get to you guys individually. So Frank, you received your bachelor's as a double major in environmental science and geography from West Michigan University, correct? Western Michigan University. Western Michigan. And then you got back into academia in river restoration at Portland State University several years later. So you seem right for your role from the start. Is that the case? This was your passion right away? Sure. I'll add NMC because I actually started here right in town from NMC with a degree in Parks and Recreation and then on to Western and then uh, many years of working uh, out basically in the field, if you will, serving engineering until I got hired by the Grand Traverse Band in 2010-11 when the project was just starting. So I'm really fortunate to be able to get back into something that you care about. I've lived on the river for 35 years, and how many people get to actually be part of their job, their life is part of the thing that they love dearly, right? Right. And you did something similar with the Grand Traverse Band as Brett or something a little different? Do you, do you have a connection there? Brett actually hired me, or, or <laughs> Desmond and, and Brett actually hired me in the Natural Resource Department. My hired title was Project Manager Wetland Ecologist at the time, and I worked for the band for seven years in the Natural Resource Department. I was just thinking about that seven-year number, how many connotations that might have, too. And so much that GTB has given back to our area, the ecology. So, Brett, did your schooling early lead you into this? What did you train for early on? Early on, yeah, I got my undergrad in uh, fish and wildlife management and 
spent a lot of time on rivers in the Upper Peninsula because I went to Lake Superior State University to get that and then moved on to University of Nebraska and worked on the Platte River in Nebraska, which is known for it's an inch deep and a mile wide is the way it's charactered. And it's a tremendous river that traverses the entire state. So, yeah, it was part of uh, my education and, and developed passion, but I never thought it would bring me to where we're at right here today. What was the initial long-term goal? Did you have something that you said, I'm going to do, I'm going to do it right, I'm going to do it big? <laughs> Get a job. I mean, <laughs> in, in fish and wildlife or in natural resources, it is not an easy realm to find work. So I grew up in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Started my undergrad there at a junior college and I remember sitting with my major professor advisor at the time and I, I started in business. Didn't do so well, okay? I, I knew at that point that I was not going to be a desk jockey, if you will. So sat down with them and looked at a curriculum book and saw fisheries and wildlife management and I looked at them and says, they pay people to do that? Wow. <laughs> so... He looked at me back and, and knowing a little bit of my history, he's like, okay, Brett, realize that chemistry, physics, and you know, all the hard sciences, it's not an easy curriculum to navigate. And in that particular career path, it's going to be unlikely you'll find a job because it's so competitive. And lastly, you aren't going to make any money. Right. And you know, I just fought that the whole way and ended up going to Lake State and pushed through it and got through grad school. And then by fortune, I can't explain, but just dropped in with the Grand Traverse Band in a temporary position through Fish and Wildlife Service, overseeing a trap net experiment, if you will. Ended wow. up working with them since 95. Amazing. So, yeah. Oh, hold on, I'm sorry, because he just totally glossed over something that he probably wouldn't say himself but he was given an opportunity to actually build out this program and has done so successfully for over 25 years, and it's a large program now. I appreciate go, that. Go ahead and write yeah. Go ahead yeah. and the form. <laughs> yeah. So in 95, when I was brought on, my boss at the time, Christine Mitchell, she was advertising a position for a fish and wildlife biologist. And the purpose or the, the, the role of that biologist was going to be to establish the inland hunting and fishing within the tribe. Because at the time, the treaty rights for 1836 treaty tribes had not been negotiated for inland, you know, inland activities. And so I looked at her as, like, as a kid and I was like, I but just took it and went. And yeah, developing regulations and the harvest permits, you name it, anything that you can think of when it comes to hunting and fishing, regulation and management right. otherwise, um, but for the tribe in particular was my role or my, my And that duty. aspect is so important, yeah. regulatory, because one misstep could be a huge detriment. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. We, I mean, from the tribe's perspective, and not just Grand Traverse Band, there were four other tribes in the 1836 ceded territory that were vying, or for you know, lack of a better word, uh, looking to argue and win the treaty rights from the 1836 Treaty of Washington. So my boss 
told me at the time, so this is 95, and she's like, well, you just, you know, within a couple of years, develop the regulations, work out the whole program, and, and we're going to be going to trial, and we'll win based on information that you collect and others to go and ready to argue this case. Wow, what a wait. So I just set out to gather as much information about how much tribal members were interested and actually harvesting on the landscape outside of state regulation. And mind you, at the time, I was tasked basically to work with tribal folks and encourage them to actually go out and exercise those treaty rights, harvest deer, harvest fish, you name it, outside of state regulation, which meant you don't need a state license or permits or anything, you'll get them from your tribe and you go and do. As you can imagine, there was a lot of kind of question over that as to comfort and, okay, so if I get pulled over by a CO, what the hell do I do, you know? And I told him, you know, here's the attorney for the tribe, Bill Radstetter, you call him, you call me, and we're going to work it out. We'll figure it out. We've got your back. So from 96 to Essentially, 2007, that was the case, because in 2007 was the point where we actually went to court, when we actually sat down at the table with the state of Michigan and the Fish and Wildlife Service and Department of Interior over these rights, okay, and negotiated a consent decree with the state to establish those rights and get them recognized. Is it normal that it takes that long in your experience? Without getting into too much detail, I mean, the treaty rights from a commercial standpoint were already basically negotiated and worked out with the state of Michigan. So everything that all fisheries and the related harvests on the Great Lakes were already established um, from an earlier court case. But because within the treaty... There was lang- There is language that s- specifies until the lands are required for settlement. Those simple terms basically meant, and a judge took it to the mat that said, until the lands are required for settlement, those rights would exist into perpetuity. Right. Well, you can't settle the Great Lakes, right? <laughs> so Judge Fox said, fine, you know, the rights exist, away you go, wow. tribes. Well... It was a matter of debate as to what lands were settled, you know, in the 1800s and forward. And so they bifurcated the case at the time and pushed it. So this was in 1979 when that initial decision was made by Judge Fox, Judge Noel Fox. And it wasn't until 2007 that the actual finalization of those of those treaty rights. Um, the circumstance and uh, decision in 1979 is what led to the Grant Travers Band getting reaffirmation as a federally recognized tribal nation. And then also the treaty that he's speaking of, they were actually established in 1836, one year before Michigan became a state in the (laughs) union. So I know that was a lot to take in, you know, but I think it's important for Brett to have shared just so that people can get a good understanding of why the tribe is involved and cares so much for being stewards of the Ottawa. Yes. I appreciate that, Mark. And let me just, I hope we don't overrun, but I want to finish that and where I got into restoration because after we, we finished the whole 
treaty rights negotiation, setting up all these inland hunting and fishing regulations and, and so on, and sitting across the table and arguing essentially over how many fish, um, where they could be harvested by tribe. Those are the kind of details that the, the minutiae Absolutely. That it, got into? it got down to like, yeah. <laughs> counting as i put it counting bean counting on a resource base so we wrap that up about 2008 i just had enough of this kind of silliness over sitting across the table with biologists navigating these things and thought it would just be much more productive and beneficial if i got into restoring you know work that actually contributed to restoring those resources to where we don't have to consider how to divide up the pie. And from there, started writing grants and then got, you know, got into restoration successfully. And that's a grant writing is a whole applied skill. That's a whole different thing. Entrepreneurism, for sure, (laughs) because he's had to continue funding his role for 26 years. So, Frank, is it true that you interned with the New York State City Park System? I was part of what was called the Parks 40 program. It was uh, the New York City Parks Department's effort to bring folks with parks management, natural resource management backgrounds uh, into the Parks Department. So I was uh, selected. I think there were 1,200 applicants, and they selected 40 of us. It was called the Parks 40 program, like I said. And uh, essentially all those folks were placed in the classroom and migrated around to different city parks departments. The idea was to have all those folks understand or learn the various parts of the New York City Parks Department, like zookeeping, like planting, um, uh, turf management, um, you name it, programs, beaches, marinas, and anything that was part of the Parks Department was, we were kind of bounced around between uh, all these departments. It was a wonderful couple of years, but it was also right at the time that Leadership in in New York changed, and uh, Dingman came into office and basically said that all city employees had to live within the confines of the city, within the within the city limits. Because that's nice and cheap, right? And impossible on what they were actually <laughs> paying us at the time. Oh you my know, gosh, sure. And also the that in combination with the struggles that we had in that program, because all the folks that were instructed to help us learn the ropes, if you will, of the way that the Parks Department operates were folks that were in those positions for 10, 15, or 20 years that were expecting the management positions that we were being plugged into, that we were being primed to plug into. So as they figured that out, as the Parks Department middle management figured that out, the program began to implode just because it just wasn't that kind of communication. So at that time, it was a blessing. They asked me uh, what kind of work I wanted to do, so they plugged me into the Parks Department Engineering Department. So I I became a survey engineer, field engineer for a couple of years, and that gave me the the boost that I, I needed when we decided to I had lived in northern Michigan. I'd been coming up here in the late since the late 60s visiting family and uh, decided that uh, I would love to move back here. Again, I went to... Uh, NMC, and I remember, I still remember the first time I ever saw the Bourbon River. I was standing above it with uh, Bill Scharf in 1977, was one of the, uh, he was my biology teacher, conservation teacher. He was my entomology teacher. He wore quite a few hats. But there was a, a group of NMC instructors, Joe Rogers, Arlo Moss, and uh, 
Uh, I'm trying to think. It's of amazing the, the 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 impact that a teacher can have. Those three fellows shaped my what I wanted to do from then on for the rest of my life, and I still think of Joe Rogers' conservation ethic, and I think about Bill Sharp has been involved in in this project. We hear from him often. The Bourbon River Restoration Project has, uh, and uh, I haven't heard from all of them often in a long time. But uh, yeah, they really. Like I said, I still remember standing along the banks of the Bourbon River on a field trip with a microbiology or a biology class and just thinking, wow, this place is beautiful. So we moved back here in uh, 86 after I got married. We decided to uh, raise a family here. I worked for an engineering company, Gosden Zubak, for five or six years, and then Elmer's uh, Engineering opened up, and, and I got a job working with Elmer's Engineering, and they actually let me expand a little bit my environmental background. I, I got some certifications in uh, wetland ecology and wetland delineation. So part of the development that was Elmer's was this ecological or environmental side that said, okay, if we're going to do this, let's do it right. That's interesting. I, I don't know that everybody would know that a company that you'd see designed for construction would have that kind of consciousness and have that kind of element. That's interesting. So I don't know who to address this question to, so I'm just going to address it to the room. What is the significance to Boardman Ottaway, the name? To those who don't know, can you share anything about the significance of, of the name? Well, that's very simple. Uh, uh, Mr. Boardman was somebody who was only here long enough to cut the trees down and ship them off to build Chicago twice. <laughs> And after the great fire of 1871, correct? Well, once and then, yeah, yeah, and then a fire and they build it again. And so since the restoration effort's been in effect, there's been an effort to go back to what the name was before this individual was here and the river got named after him. If I'm not wrong, it was only named after him because that was the main mode of transportation for the logging industry in northern Michigan. And so that's how it became the Boardman River. But before then, it was known as the Ottawa. Oh, that's beautiful. I'll just clarify. Captain Boardman arrived here in, in 1848. And like Mark said, he actually wound up getting the permission to move the logging industry forward, basically cut down every tree within quite a distance from here. I think he left the area in 1852, so four years after he'd come here. By then, Hannah Lay companies had basically started moving forward with the development of downtown Traverse City, but Captain Borman was gone on to someplace else, and the river was named after him. Wow. So looking at the Brown Bridge Dam project, what an undertaking. It's been highly openly discussed, the benefits that it brings to our region. Looking back for both of you, are there things that you wish you could have talked about at the time or that weren't talked about when that project started that you could have been more free to say this is why or anything looking back on that yeah I, it's hard to describe in words and I'll, I'll try and put paint a picture for you but i think the most compelling moment in time frank and i actually were standing on this overlook of the valley shortly after it had dewatered. And when I say dewatered, right, it was <laughs> basically we had a, a failure of a dewatering structure and emptied 
about half of the pond in a matter of hours and sent a flood wave downstream and along with that you know all the material that comes with it it was uh yeah, it was remarkable to say the least but i i want to say it was a day after we were standing up there and just in awe over the revelation of you know what was beneath that pond all the all the stumps and uh organic material, everything that was sitting there that had been covered for better than a century. And there was a couple standing next to us and commenting on how awful it looked and how that this dam removal project as there it is, it's destroyed the river. You know, we, the, you overheard somebody saying that. Yep right next to us and they were just like it's just it was an awful sight to them devastating you know a stump strewn field of dead trees and so on okay not and, understanding that that's the plan yeah once it was going to be drained that's what you would see exactly so as i'm sitting there as we're sitting there thinking okay if i could just capture that moment and pause it for a year and then have those same folks come back and just revisit that moment and look at it, that this is why, right? This is how quickly Mother Nature can return to its, right. you just let it be. You, know, you would have liked to physically shown people afterwards. Yeah. So what are some of the partners that you engaged in this project? Is it true that the Army Corps of Engineers was involved? Yes. So the Army Corps of Engineers was involved basically since the initial phases of it to conduct uh, environmental assessment you know, for uh, federal policy that's required for any expenditure of federal dollars, NEPA, National Environmental right. Policy Act. So they had started uh, initially in gathering that data to contribute towards a plan for what to do with these dams. I want to back up just a little bit there. I think we just skipped over a humongous chunk of the of, of the story is that when we start talking about, you mentioned partners, and once there was a, basically a, a settlement agreement that, that something had to be done about the fate of these dams, right? There, from 2005 to 2009, there were all these meetings, many, many meetings, hundreds of folks and, and many meetings to try to come up with some sort of a, a plan moving forward. The, but the the IT, the implementation team, that's an acronym there for you, Boardman River Dams Settlement Agreement Implementation Team. Oh, IT. that's a good one. Yeah, it's a long <laughs> one. Uh, that was formed, and, those, and you could say the partners, it was formed by first the voting members of that team were the agencies, entities that actually had a right to the resource. So that would be... Uh, the Grand Traverse Band of Ottawa and Chippewa Indians through their treaty with the United States government, the state of Michigan Department of Environmental Quality, state of Michigan Department of Natural Resources, they were separate at the time, uh, Grand Traverse County, uh, city of Traverse City, Michigan Hydro Relicensing Coalition, Traverse City Light and Power. U.S. Fish and Wildlife. U.S. Fish and Wildlife, thank you. That was a huge undertaking. Sure, but the important part about that is that the team was put together so that every time a decision was made, every time there were plans made moving forward, each one of these entities didn't have to go back to a silo to engage their separate entities and, and then come back and make decisions. Basically, it was putting the right people in the same room together making decisions so that 
all those decisions were kind of guided by the team. It was put together with a consensus on a consensus base. So at any time, if any one of those entities, those eight voting members, decided that that was something they weren't interested in, right. they could say no, and, and, and that idea was basically shut down. So less bureaucracy than normal. Sure. Because the structure was set up correct. So looking at the time frame for that project, and you alluded to this, Frank, it kind of goes back to 2004 when TC Light and Power decided to s- discontinue the use of the dams for hydropower, correct? Correct. So it this is a long the, journey. The licensing, and Brett can talk about the licensing, the, the relinquishing of the license to generate power on the... But from 2004 and then the completion of the project, 2018? Right. It takes a long, That is a long yeah. time. Which is, yeah, in, in government speak, that's probably just a moment. Sure, you know, it's, it's a snap. It's, and, uh, but, yeah, so the licenses for all four hydros had come up for renewal in, at that time in, in 2003, four somewhere in there. And the owners, Traverse City Light and Power of the City, well, I should say the city of Traverse City and Grand Traverse County, uh, we're wondering what to do. Could we get these relicensed and continue to produce power at, you know, at what cost was the question. And so the Department of Natural Resources, a good friend of mine, biologist, Todd Collish, was responsible for this on the state side of things, kind of came to the tribe, came to me and, and said, that, hey, we, we think we can help the owners of these dams deal with these things and if we can establish this partnership to look at the fate and work it through to restoring this system that we could help remove these dams and restore the river but uh, instead of uh, repowering these. So looking at that project what particular challenges did you face and conversely what did you think was going to be a huge challenge that wasn't? I think that is uh, it's a function of scale because the first thing that comes to my mind is funding. At first, thought it was just an insurmountable achievement or task to pursue the funding uh, necessary to remove or, and or modify three, four dams on on a river system. And this was the largest dam removal project in Michigan. I mean, and to date, it still is correct. Yes, that's correct. So the funding, which you know, just the spectrum of partners contributing to that really helps. But additionally, convincing the local community that this is a good thing, that this is something that that they can believe in and look down the road to, that it's going to benefit them in personal ways and, and to continue to try and step outside of that and consider, you know, their, their yeah. future generations. Yeah. So the folks that really not only was the implementation team constantly working at figuring out how to move the project forward, fund it, bring the public into the engagement part. But we also had NGOs, non-government organizations that were huge in influencing and bringing dollars and bringing public awareness to the table. The Watershed Center, uh, CRA, we could name several, So that and, and Rotary Charities of Traverse City. Those would be the key folks that really helped drive the public awareness and uh, some of the local dollars for the project. It's just, uh, I remember there was an award 
Conservation Leadership Award. This was uh, Bob Jackson was back. He was a, a fellow who was working for the BIA, Bureau of uh, Indian Affairs. There we Sorry, go. Thank you. <laughs> Bureau of Indian Affairs and out of the Minnesota office. And Brett and I were, we were really fortunate because we had an outstanding project and we got pretty good at writing grants for it. So we kept bringing these dollars to the table. And once you get that snowball kind of moving and you get those dollars coming in, it makes it easier for other entities like NGOs, like other funding agencies, like the U.S. government, like the EPA, the, the Environmental Protection Agency. I might have had that one down. <laughs> uh, to to yeah. want to fund it because they can see this really large-scale project getting something done. So we're actually getting these things done on the ground. And I, and it was uh, really amazing. So I'm getting to the, the story part was that Bob Jackson said, well, we want to give out a plaque to everyone that was involved in it. And can you write those down? And after we got past about 120 different organizations or sets of groups of individuals. A lot of plaques. That's a, a lot of plaques. It defined the reason why we were getting the uh, award in the first place. I just, I've never seen anything like this, the amount of input that we've had. Amazing. So, Brett, I read from an Interlochen public radio article you did in 2019, and I think you encapsulated something really important about this dam project where you addressed industrial noise. And with its presence, quote, you wouldn't hear that bird singing, you wouldn't hear the rain falling, wouldn't hear the wind. Now, was that just something that you were prompted to say? Because when you think about standing by the side of a river, you don't think about the droning of a dam. And did that just come from your heart? Or was that something you always just thought about as part of this project? Those kinds of moments do. I mean, I spent so much time on this river and so many others. And that particular one was in association with Brown Bridge and been out there many times and hearing the, the drone, that, that whining of the turbines as it was rolling water through them and it all stuck in my mind. And then some of the first tours that we had given people to experience the restoration. So I spoke to the folks that had these negative sentiments over a pond being drained and and what it looked like. So that was that moment. Yeah, right? that's As, bringing them back and hearing the quiet now. You yep. can hear that bird. And to stand there where that dam used to be, oh, to sit there and just I ask people just to listen and pay attention to what they're hearing. And usually they're like, yeah, they call attention to the birds or whatever is there. If you could overlay what used to be there just a few years, you know, it's, it's a really striking, striking. In all the discourse that I'd read about that project and any negativity towards that, your comment about not being able to hear the birds, that just kind of struck with me. And in a transcript from a conversation a few of you had with Into the Outdoors, the first question out of the gate, which I thought was brilliant, was who determines the worth of a river? And it was almost comical how the answers varied. So is lack of clarity to that question a really debilitating issue? Everyone has a different mindset. Within that mindset, there are probably several different avenues that a person could answer that from. When you ask that question, is the person answering it for their own behalf, like this is what I believe, or are they answering that question that this is what I think all believe, or uh, this is what I think some higher power or God believes, or when you ask a wide open question like that, 
I love that section of the movie because the answers, you're right, are kind of very all over the place, you know. I can remember several of the answers in there and just putting a smile to my face when I hear people think about answering on the river's behalf. When I hear that buried in someone's answer somewhere, or not even buried, maybe it's right out in front, but you can tell when people are talking about the river, it, more talking to the river, with the river, than talking about the river. You know, you can just hear it in some folks' answers. It's not like you're talking about an object. It's more like you're talking about a living thing, whether it's a family member, and we've had that discussion, but more than that, it's as living a thing as anything around it. Because it is. Yeah. So I want to pivot to fish. And I'm going to kick this off with Brett, because you, sir, have a passion for fish, specifically trout. Uh, you've delivered many presentations on the subject. Uh, you helped the Human Nature School with their creek in Leelanau, which was a great video. You were stellar in that. And you were quoted in an August 2020 article saying that the Bridge Project, quote, established a rare cold water fishery, improving both the mix and population of various species. Why was that important? Diversity. I mean, when when we're talking about any kind of um, self-sustaining system, resilient system, it's about diversity, right? And the typical trout stream in Michigan is probably is comprised these days, anyways, of probably three or four species, which is a product of uh, kind of a contemporary management for sport fishes: brown trout, brook trout, and then a couple of species of forage species like right. sculpin and darter. So, uh, you know, that's been the underpinning of this restoration project is to not only restore the connectivity of this system internally with the upper three dams, but then to also allow for the exchange of fish from the Great Lakes, right. which historically have had access to these tributaries to, right. to Lake Michigan and so on. So and that diversity is what allows for that resiliency right. and the ability to withstand change. And that's even, you know, important with that human nature school creek. It's a small creek, but there's so yep. much wildlife. And I learned a ton. I learned a lot of great terms from you. Thank you so much. It's going to help at parties at some point. But I want to move on to fish pass. And for anyone to take the lead, you know, when you can't sleep and you think about fish pass, what makes you happy? What gives you joy? Makes me happy is the the uh, where where we are today as far as the Bourbon River Restoration Project. Brett and I got to stand along the side of the bank of it was Sabin Dam, and it, I'm thinking this was probably three years ago, right after Sabin was opened, two or three years ago, and realizing, holy cow, the river is running the way it should be running through this, and in a way that it hasn't been running in. Over 100 years, it was mind-boggling. The project as a whole, I just can't believe that we had gotten that far. I just remember standing there with, with Brett and Todd thinking, holy cow, this team removed three dams on one river in Michigan, and that's unheard of anywhere, really, to be able to go to sleep at night. And whether you're sleeping or not, or the, there, there are things that might might keep you up, that's one thing that helps me sleep really well, is that we did the right thing for the river. An amazing accomplishment, but at the end of the day, you know, what we set out to do uh, was to truly reconnect this river with the Great Lakes, Re reconnect it in a way that allows for 
the transport of water, of sediment. You know, I'm getting into geomorphology speak, but but also well, geomorphology. That's a good one. Yeah, fluvial <laughs> geomorphology. Lake sturgeon is a species of fish that is is known and could be characterized as the Eucharist of tribal people in the Great Lakes region. It's a it's a species that is ancient beyond well, beyond compare in the Great Lakes. It's revered. It's just a tremendous species that's occupied these waters for eons. They live to be over a hundred years old. Now these fish. What is a typical lifespan for a fish? Four to eight years, oh you know, depending on, so that'd be an average across the board. But uh, yeah, so these, this species of fish has occupied the Great Lakes you know, forever and known as uh, you know, important to the diet and culture and aspects of tribal people since the beginning. And early on when Europeans came to the region and exploited the whitefish and lake trout and so on that were here, sturgeon would get into those nets and destroy them, hurt them, mm-hmm. tear them up or whatever. So they, you know, any sturgeon that were harvested or ended up in these nets were burned on the beach as basically waste and pests. So long story short, habitat destruction, overharvest, and uh, just general uncare has resulted in lake sturgeon being um, reduced to very small numbers. They're a long-lived species, takes them 20 plus years to mature. They'll live over 100 years old, they spoke. And so they used to migrate these rivers, traditionally, historically, to spawn and uh, produce. And so these lowermost barriers that Frank spoke to, you know, they exist on rivers throughout the Great Lakes region, not just the Boardman, Ottawa. And the, those barriers within, say, the lowermost couple of miles of the confluence of these rivers with Lake Michigan or, or the Great Lakes in general have served as basically barriers to those migrations of those fish right. and successful spawning and production into the, to the Great Lakes. You know, to, to imagine that if we're taking these dams out and allow what few fish, what few sturgeon are still left in the Great Lakes to migrate up these systems and, and actually experience that river once again right. as if their ancestors did. Uh, is yeah, it's an are they are they, they tasty? What's the best way to prepare a lake sturgeon? Yeah, good, <laughs> good question. So, yeah, the the flesh is good. Okay, smoked. The, our resident sturgeon that we just just saw th- uh, three months ago. So, as far as this team, this this group that's been involved in this river restoration project, as part of the project, we always had target species. It's part of the goals and objectives for the pieces that you, when you write the grants for and, mm-hmm. and for the projects, the sturgeon was, was certainly one of them. Wow. And none of us, not a single one of us that I can think of had seen one right. for <laughs> over, well, in the 12 years that I've been involved in a project and the 35 years I've lived in northern Michigan, I have never seen a sturgeon in that river. Yeah. And I've been in it quite a bit. You know, yep. I've lived on it for a long time and I've been in it quite a bit. And then this year, this spring... Five yep. foot ten inch female sturgeon swims right up the stream, and it seemed like 
uh, it was just a sign. It just was incredible that uh, here we are coming to the last piece of our project, kind of walking into the unknown a little bit for this whole connection piece that Brett's talking about. And this fish that could be 60, 80 years old, its parents could have swum up that river without the dams in place. And we're watching this fish swim upstream. I was standing on top of the bridge looking down, and these guys were standing on the on the boardwalk uh, towards Union Street Dam. And I think I'm screaming, jumping <laughs> up and down like this, saying I, I couldn't believe it. I, it. And it wasn't just like a, a fading glimpse. It was we all saw it. We all had time to experience it. We, we got some footage of it. Three days later, the uh, fish survey crew... Uh, during their survey, actually captured it, tagged it, and released it. I mean, wow. it was just absolutely beautiful. It, it's what we live for, you know. We all kind of sat there and said, here she is. Here's the sturgeon that's been wanting to come up this river for 120 years. And actually, there were some folks that brought up some really good points. Well, you remove three dams. Is there some part of the nutrient cycle that actually wound up making the reconnection to the Great Lakes in a way that it attracted her. Mm -hmm. And there's so many pieces of those ecological niches that we'll never, never understand, understand, never understand. But holy cow, here she is. And the timing is basically, I'm at the door, folks. I want to go back up. What's uplifting to me is watching you take such joy in what you've accomplished. You can see what you've done. Your muscles are flexed. You see this amazing fish. You're taking the joy. I see it in your eyes. But, you know, looking forward, what are you most excited to see happen? I'm excited for not only the Boardman Ottaway, what it means, but what it could mean for the Great Lakes in general. I spoke to the lowermost barriers. You know, we both have. And the, and the significance that that's had on Great Lakes fisheries. You know, we're talking about watersheds like the Manistee River or you name any large river system tributary to the Great Lakes that have been basically cut off, you know, when it comes to fisheries and other organisms for that matter for, you know, better than a century. And I, I can't help but feel like from the scientific community that this notion of what the condition of the Great Lakes fisheries are, is more a function of some of the things that we've done, we as humans, overfishing and so on, and less about how it's been just chopped off from these watersheds. And it's really convenient to go there, but we can't necessarily quantify what kind of contribution these large watersheds had to the Great Lakes fisheries. And if we can come to a solution that allows for the removal or at least making these lowermost barriers permeable, if you will, to native fisheries and not just your conventional money-making fisheries like steelhead and salmon, that's what's really exciting. I mean, just to think of the hundreds of species that used to be able to get up to these systems and live there and do whatever that was necessary for the benefit of those communities right. is that. Aside from the visual improvement fish pass brings, then there's educational opportunities, correct? Like That's, programs can be instituted to, to create awareness in young people that may help this not be a challenge in the future, right? Because 
if you don't have education, you don't have the facility to do it, ignorance will prevail. There are folks that, interns that already have been working as part of the, the project. The uh, GLFC has had uh, two or three different interns uh, right from uh, Northwestern Mission College, also from a couple other schools, universities, uh, directly involved in the project. But to actually bring folks to uh, to a place where they can hands-on learn about the impact of connected rivers and fisheries, it's a huge, a humongous educational opportunity. Could you to be potentially, able to... could they offer tours to regular folks just who want to learn? You bet. I mean, I, I would argue that that's sort of the the objective here is not to, you know, from a scientific, everybody, can, we can give tours to scientific science nerds all day long, but mm -hmm. it's where it really counts. And Regular nerds folks. could go too eventually. Yeah, right. That's good. You bet. So looking forward, Fish Pass is built. It's eight years in the future. What do you think the greatest success or the greatest impact? What do you think years from now that legacy will be? Well, years from now, let's really think about this is that if folks thought enough about their children's 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 grandchildren, they might make decisions in ways that are different than they if they thought about what was going to happen next year. Oh, absolutely. To be able to think about that, not just what's in it for your children or your grandchildren, but your grandchildren's grandchildren is a way of thinking that I think is too rare for the common people in our society. Well said. Just to have that mindset, and that, that comes out of my experience. I'm fortunate to have been at, in the Natural Resource Department at GTB, but that's the gift I consider I was given by the Grand Travis Band by being employed there is just having a totally different way of looking at my place in history or in, in the world, you know, and just just thinking about things in a totally different way. And I think that's when people start realizing that, you know, that we don't need bottled water in these little uh, plastic bottles here. And we don't need, not not that one particular. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. 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 Sorry about that. But uh, oh, we're, we're Typically getting Typically I do have a water uh, sustainable. Yeah, I should have read the room better ahead of time. So um, what are the, like, calls to action surrounding Fish Path? What's the best way to support? What's the best way for just regular people and our listeners to support, to take care of our resources, to be mindful, short of listening to this episode? And how can people get involved? Well, I think, first of all, it kind of turns back to our the opening of this conversation about how rivers are looked at. I mean, I, if you could think of your most precious relative, whether that's a sibling, a child, whatever, just consider that same love and care for any river, for that matter. And if you just, if you start to, if you even just begin to kind of comprehend that, then you start to feel it, and you, I believe you'll care more. And, you know, as far as getting involved, it's just pay attention you know, take some time, get out, and seek the facts, seek the truth behind what's really going on in these efforts. You know. Right. Well, there's a lot of information out there both ways, right? The Internet is the Wild West. So are there places, not to put either of you on the spot, 
that are more reputable as far as information? I mean, anything that's a .gov, um, are there areas that you can go to get the true facts in your opinions? If I was going to direct someone to a resource that, that actually explains the entire project in its entirety, it would be to the GLFC, the Great Lakes Fishery Commission website has okay. on their website. They're a bi-national organization, uh, and they were they were created under a treaty, somewhat like the the agreement between tribal nations and the U.S. government. The Great Lakes Fishery Commission is, I won't speak for them, but charged with some pretty heady pieces of responsibility, which is to help manage the entire Great Lakes. And they, so the easy answer to the question is, on their website, there's pull-down tabs under Fish Pass that'll explain a great deal. If you want to know about the Borman Project as a whole and where we started, the Borman.org, that website has been in place for 15 years now, I believe, or 12 years now. And I most if not all the documents I'm familiar with that have come through the implementation team are posted there in the archives and the historical documents. There's quite a bit of information on that website. Well, this has been extraordinary. I can't thank you all enough for doing this. And part one of what, again, we hope is a part two series, right? Uh, who knows what time frame part two might be. Pratt and Frank and Mark, gosh, this has been amazing. Uh, your passion looking, uh, this is not a visual medium, but I'm here looking at you too. And I see the passion and it's so uplifting. So thank you so much for your pursuits to all those who pursue along with you, creating a healthy and positive ecosystem for us and restoring our rivers. And I look forward to part two of this podcast more than you can know. And to our listeners, thank you so much for listening and for pursuing the positive. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us again on the Pursuit of Podcast. I want to thank our guests, Frank DeTurry, Brett Fessel, for joining us and all their work on the Ottawa River. For more information, go to theboardman.org and learn about the Boardman Ottawa River Restoration. I also want to give a shout out to our supporters at the Tin Lid Hat Company. That's tinlidco.com. Use promo code the pursuit of for 40% off to our listeners. For general inquiries on audio, visual production, podcasting, we're always looking to work with new people. Come to newleonard.com.